haven't met. Uh, I get the privilege of worshiping here every week and also the privilege of sharing God's word with you today. Uh, let's open our time in the scriptures with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you pr- great praise and glory. We thank you that on a hot and steamy day like this, uh, we can still come together and worship you. That you've called your people together despite the elements. To think, to worship, to pray, to experience. A taste of the red-hot passion that you promise when we all see you face-to-face in heaven. So this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that it becomes a bit of a feast for our souls, a taste of what is to come. Be with us as we listen and hear from your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Over this month of January, Todd's been preaching through Jesus' little stories with a point. We call them parables. And they've been mostly out of the Gospels. So far we've learned and listened about how to be hearers and listeners of God's word. And we also gaped at God's great love for the spiritually lost people in our world. Well, today we're going to stick with our theme of parables, but so I don't tread on Todd's toes in the coming weeks. Um, we're going to veer out of the Gospels and head a few hundred years back in time to one of the few parables that we find in the Old Testament. <clears throat> so about a hundred years before the story that we're going to look at today occurs, the proud and glorious kingdom of Israel, which was established by David and Solomon under the lordship of Yahweh God, dissolved, sadly, into two lesser kingdoms. Mostly under the lordship of whichever dynasty could spill the most blood. The southern kingdom of Judah had moments of faithfulness to Yahweh in its history. But the northern kingdom, Israel, the nation that we're going to look at today in our story, went from bad to worse to putrid. And lucky for you, we're jumping right into the putrid part. The man at the center of our story is an infamous man by the name of Ahab, who is seventh king of the divided nation of Israel. And to give a little context about him, we'll look at his CV. He was the son of the most wicked king to that point in history. He was married to the daughter of the pagan priest king of demon worshippers from the north. He was an active worshiper of the demon gods Baal and Asherah. 1 Kings 16.33 says, He did more to provoke the Lord's anger than anyone else in history to that point. He received a spectacular DNF, or did not finish, on Mount Carmel, when his 400 priests couldn't get the attention of their god Baal to start the barbecue. But when Elijah, Yahweh's God's contestant, simply prayed. God showed up immediately, not fashionably late, but kicked off the barbecue in grand style with fire falling from heaven in cascades. Unfortunately for the barbecue, he burnt the meat and the Weber too. On the other side of our story, we have our main aggressor. His name is Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. His CV, which is mercifully shorter, concludes mostly attacking Israel in the name of his demon god, Rimon, 
rash decisions, and hosting boozy lunches with his mates. So as we work through our story today, we'll be faced with this repeated message. God is serious about accomplishing his purposes, both globally and personally. How are we going to respond? So with that, we'll pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 20, with Ben-Hadad laying siege to Ahab's capital of Samaria. So let's start with 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 to 12. And I'm going to be reading out of the um, Christian Standard Bible, so if you want, follow along on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bibles as well. Now, the king Ben-Hadad of Aram, or Syria, assembled his entire army. Thirty-two kings, along with horses and chariots, were with him. He marched up, besieged Samaria, and fought against it. He sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said to him, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and your gold are mine, and your best wives and children are mine as well. Then the king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord, the king, I am yours, along with all that I have. The messengers then returned and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I have sent messengers to you, saying, You are to give me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But at this time tomorrow, I will send my servants to you, and they will search your palace and your servants' houses. They will lay their hands on and take away whatever is precious to you. Then the king of Israel called for all the elders of the land and said, Recognize that this one is only looking for trouble. For he demanded my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I didn't turn him down. All the elders and all the people said to him, Don't listen or agree. So he said to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Say to my lord the king, Everything you demanded of your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. So the messengers left and took word back to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent messengers to him and said, May the gods punish me and do so severely if Samaria's dust amounts to a handful for each of the people who follow me. Then the king of Israel answered, Say this, Don't let the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. Our main aggressor, Ben-Hadad, has besieged the capital city of Israel with an unbelievably large army. It's sort of like the equivalent of the Chinese army, army, currently the world's largest, at about 3.4 million soldiers attacking Australia's army, weighing in at a measly 79,000 soldiers. Not great odds, I think. At first, Ben-Hadad simply demands that Ahab become one of his underling kings, maybe number 33, since he has 32 already with him. Ben-Hadad wants to take Ahab's favorite wives and children as hostages and wants regular tribute payments, starting with a very sizable down payment up front. Ahab readily agrees, and smartly. But then Ben-Hadad gets too full of himself and decides to press his advantage by bloodlessly overthrowing the kingdom of Israel by politely taking everything of beauty and value in the capital. That's utter humiliation. Ahab simply will not go down without at least giving it the old one-two. So he politely refuses. In response, Ben-Hadad boasts that he will so obliterate the city of Samaria that his soldiers will struggle to find even enough sand to fill those little souvenir bottles to put their knick-knack shelves. 
And with a quip to make all of us Aussies proud, Ahab fires back with a boast, saying, it is much better suited for a king to boast when he is taking his armor off after the battle is won than while he's still putting it on and nothing has happened yet. And like all good decisions in history, Ben-Hadad decides it's time for war while he and his mates are getting sloshed down at the pub. Can you feel the tension? The kingdom of Israel is on the verge of annihilation, even with a boozy king. And it would seem justified too. After all, Israel has spent the last hundred years since Solomon and David's day rebelling against Yahweh God and choosing a life of sin and adultery. But that isn't how our God rolls. The book of one kings is not ultimately about the various human kings that ruled over Judah and Israel. No, one kings is about the true king. And the true king is supernaturally serious about accomplishing his purposes in and for his people. And Israel is his people. So let's continue with our story in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 13 and 20, and see how this continues to play out. When Ben-Hadad heard this response, while he and the kings were drinking in their quarters, he said to his servants, take your positions. So they took their positions against the city. A prophet named King Ahab, a prophet approached King Ahab of Israel and said, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this whole army? Watch, I am handing it over to you today so that you may know that I am the Lord. Ahab asked, by whom? And the prophet said, this is what the Lord says by the young men of the provincial leaders. Then Ahab asked, who is to start the battle? He said, you. So Ahab mobilized the young men of the provincial leaders and there were 232. After then, he mobilized all the Israelite troops, 7,000. They marched out at noon while Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings were helping themselves, or were helping him, were getting drunk in their quarters. The young men of the provincial leaders marched out first. Then Ben-Hadad sent out scouts, and they reported to him, saying, Men are marching out of Samaria. So he said, If they have marched out in peace, take them alive. And if they have marched out for battle, take them alive. The young men of the provincial leaders and the army behind them marched out from the city, and each one struck down his opponent. So the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. But King Ben-Hadad of Aram escaped on a horse with the cavalry. Then the king of Israel marched out and attacked the cavalry and the chariots. He inflicted a severe slaughter on Aram. Plot twist. We weren't expecting that, were we? Right when things were looking most desolate and graveyardish, in walks a prophet of Yahweh God. The prophet is unnamed, so there can be no doubt in our story who the real hero and superstar is. God. Astonishingly, given Ahab's CV, throws Ahab a line, albeit it's a thin jute line. God declares, so that no one can be left in doubt when it happens, that he will win the battle against the antagonist, Ben-Hadad. His 32 kings and their bottled souvenir dust-grabbing army. And how will God do it? With 232 under-15s National Sword Fighting Club up against the the top-of-the-world Syrian test side. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and his mates are still pub-crawling their way through the encampment. And in yet another moment of sloshy brilliance, Ben-Hadad gives 
the order to take all prisoners. In his arrogance and his pride, and his befuddled drunkenness, Ben-Hadad still thinks that Samaria will throw up the white flag. However, Ben-Hadad forgot to reckon in the true sovereign of Israel, a.k.a. not Ahab. That flimsy jute line, the under-15s, put the smack down, and the Syrians and their now sobering up king take to their heels and flee with their tails between their legs. This is a supernatural victory. It never should have happened. But God has supernaturally declared his sovereignty over his people and over his land. This should encourage each of us. When God has claimed his turf, his people, and his land, he supernaturally protects them, and no rebellious, wicked king or drunken, arrogant aggressor can alter that. In Ephesians, which Imre actually just read for us earlier, it says that our battles are not against flesh and blood, people, but against the powers of evil in the spiritual realm. Uh, That's in verse 12. So if we have sided with Christ and declared our citizenship in God's eternal kingdom, then we can have deep and utter assurance that God will supernaturally accomplish all of his purposes within us. We can have deep assurance of his perfect and lasting love for each of us personally. We can live with confidence even when things looking graveyardish for us too. Because God is supernaturally serious about accomplishing all of his purposes, both globally and personally. But not only is he supernaturally serious about accomplishing his purposes, God is also underestimatedly serious. So let's continue with our story. Um, in chapter, verses 22 to 34. The prophet approached the king of Israel and said to him, Go and strengthen yourself, then consider carefully what you should do. For in the spring the king of Aram will attack you. Now the king of Aram's servants said to him, Their gods are gods of the hill country. That's why they were stronger than we were. Instead, we should fight them on the plain." Then we will certainly be stronger than they are. Also, do this. Remove each king from his position and appoint captains in their place. Raise another army for yourself like the army you lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot. And let's fight with them on the plain. And we will certainly be stronger than they are. The king listened to them and did it. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mobilized the Arameans and went up to Aphek to battle Israel. The Israelites mobilized, gathered supplies, and went to fight them. The Israelites camped in front of them like two little flocks of goats, while the Arameans filled the landscape. Then the man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys, I will hand over all, the whole, all this whole army to you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. They camped opposite each other for seven days. On the seventh day, the battle took place, and the Israelites struck down the Arameans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. The ones who remained fled into the city of Aphek, and the wall fell on those 27,000 remaining men. Ben-Hadad also fled and went into an upper room in the city. His servants said to him, Consider this, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings, so let's put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads 
and let's go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they dressed with sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Benadad says, Please spare my life. So Ahab said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were looking for a sign of hope, so they quickly picked up on this and responded, Yes, it is your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. So Ben-Hadad came out to him, and Ahab had him come up into his chariot. Then Ben-Hadad said to him, I restore to you the cities that my father took from your father, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus, like my father set up in Samaria. Ahab responded, On the basis of this treaty, I release you. So he made a treaty with him and released him. After Ben-Hadad slinks back home to lick his wounds and to regroup, God again astonishingly warns the rebellious Ahab that this was only round one. Round two would come at the next annual Let's Rough Up Our Neighbor Carnival that they did each year. Meanwhile, back in Damascus, Ben-Hadad starts a theology discussion group. The thesis that the think tank comes up with is that Yahweh God may have put on a good show in the first battle, but since Israel is a hilly country, Israel's God would only have the upper hand when they were up on a hill. So the theology thesis concluded, if they battled on the plain, on the flat, their vast numbers and superior spiritual backing would surely overwhelm the hilly Israelite gods. They also thought that a new corporate reporting and leadership structure would also help. Nothing like a good old reorg to get everything rolling again. The fatal flaw for Ben-Hadad and the Syrians was that they weren't reading the same theology texts that Yahweh God was writing. Or maybe they just missed the entry in their theological dictionary under Y for Yahweh, which reads something like this. Totally awesome, creator of the universe, supreme lord of heaven and earth, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign, all-loving, god of hills, god of plains, god of dot, dot, dot. The entry goes on for several millennia, so maybe that was part of their problem. The Syrians seriously underestimated Yahweh God. The other problem for Ben-Hadad and the Syrians, sounds like a rock band, doesn't it? was that despite his best efforts otherwise, this time Ahab actually got a pass on his theology homework. He he heeded Yahweh God's command to prepare over the winter, and he listened when God declared that he would give the Syrians a proper theology lecture by utterly destroying them for the second time, and on the plane to boot. So in a battle that is decisively won by God, God declares once again that he is sovereign, that he should not be underestimated, and that he will accomplish his purposes amongst his people and in the world. So how have you, how have I underestimated God? Where is our theology deficient? Where have we said that God might have come through over here, but this thing over here, well, he is just a God in the hills after all, isn't he? Marriage, family, work. Are there issues in your life that seem to be bearing down on you like a Syrian army? Finances, health, relationships. Do you feel like that tiny flock of goats in the passage with no escape? 
submerged in a sea of enemies. At these moments, who is your God? Is he just a provincial, off and on again, sovereign here but not over there kind of God? Or is he the warrior God who took two stakes to the wrist and one to the ankles in order to win the most terrifying and ghastly battle that mankind has ever faced? Is he the God who speaks and what he says happens? Who brings the unimaginable things into being just by saying, be? Whose every action is too wonderful and too marvelous for us to even comprehend? This God, the real God, should never be underestimated because this God is serious about accomplishing every one of his purposes. And one of his purposes for us to keep is to keep us from stumbling and to present us as blameless before his glorious self on the final day, Jude 24. This purpose for each of us means that we have infinite hope that whatever we are facing, God is working in and through it to present us before himself complete and full and perfect. Encouraging stuff. God is underestimatedly serious about accomplishing his purposes in you. Let's now return to our story because it's not quite finished yet. Let's read the rest of the passage, verses 35 to 43. And we finally get to the parable I promised at the start. One of the sons of the prophets said to his fellow prophet, by the word of the Lord, strike me. But the man refused to strike him. He told him, because you did not listen to the Lord, mark my words. When you leave me, a lion will kill you. When he left him, a lion attacked and killed him. The prophet found another man and said to him, strike me. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet went and waited for the king on the side of the road. He disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king was passing by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant marched out into the middle of the battle. Suddenly, a man turned aside and brought someone to me and said, Guard this man. If he is ever missing, it will be your life in place of his life, or you will weigh out 75 pounds of silver. But while your servant was busy here and there, he disappeared. The king of Israel said to him, That will be your sentence. You yourself have decided it. He quickly removed the bandage from his eyes. The king of Israel recognized that he was one of the prophets. The prophet said to him, This is what the Lord says. Because you released from your hand the man I had set apart for destruction, it will be your life in place of his life, and your people in place of his people. The king of Israel left for home, resentful and angry, and he entered Samaria. If we had stopped before this last bit of our passage, we would have thought everything was all sweet, hunky-dory. Ahab had done what God had asked him to do. God had done what he said he would do. Ben-Adad would be on his way home with his tail between his legs for the second time. And Ahab would have been seen as a generous and kind king. But the problem is, This isn't a story about how great a guy Ahab is. After all, he's the anti-hero. 
This is a story about the superstar Yahweh God. And this is something that Ahab forgot, or probably more perfectly, rather refused to believe in the first place. You see, Ahab didn't realize that God is also deadly serious about accomplishing his purposes in the world. God has real enemies, and he has real reasons for wanting those enemies dispatched. We see this in two particular ways in our text. The first is that the whole second battle in this passage is framed and designed as a parallel to Israel's defeat of Jericho. There are huge enemy army, seven days waiting before go time, utter devastation, walls falling down on people, prophetic promises of victory. The battle of Jericho was a holy war, a war in which God's judgment comes down on human sinfulness and rebellion, but also, more importantly, on the demonic spiritual forces represented by those peoples. It is a declaration of the sovereignty and supremacy of Yahweh God over and against all the evil and rebellious false gods. And Ben-Hadad was no different. God was declaring that he is sovereign over all the evil demonic gods of Syria, Ramon and others, and their human puppets as well. God reminds us of this when he expressly correlates his actions with Syria's bad theology. The second way we see how deadly serious God is is through the bizarre mauling and death of the disobedient prophet. God's message was so great and so direct from him that his prophet's death serves to emphasize God's seriousness about his business. And it also prefigures Ahab's failure and disobedience, which is about to be announced. You see, Ahab's magnanimity, his act of apparent kindness to Ben-Hadad, is actually yet another subtle form of rebellion against God. Ahab acted under his own strength and his own wisdom. He didn't even consult God as to what he should have done if he had been in doubt. This event serves as Ahab's ultimate test of allegiance from the Lord. Will he choose Yahweh God or will he choose himself and his idolatry? And Ahab failed and failed so miserably that God declares that his life is forfeit and that his subjects, the people of Israel, will suffer for it too. And the fact is, Benadad keeps returning year after year to make war on Israel. And Israel suffers mightily at Syria's hand in all those years. And it will be at the hand of these very same Syrians and the very same Benadad in another battle that Ahab will find a randomly shot arrow sticking out of his ribcage thus fulfilling the word of the Lord. This is hard for all of us. This passage asks us whether we take the roles that God has sovereignly given to each of us as seriously as God does. Every role that God gives to us is an act of his grace intended for our good and the good of others. As a father or mother, a son or a daughter, a worker or student, a husband or a wife, a Christian, Do we work to fulfill these roles as God intends? Like Ahab as king of God's people, a specific specific role that God had given to him. Each role that God calls us to has certain expectations and requirements. Do we faithfully and obediently live them out? Our role model here is Christ himself, who did not consider his heavenly role as one to clutch onto with a death grip 
But instead, seeing the need to take on another role for his people, he humbled himself as a human, took on the role of a servant, and even subjected himself, the author of life, to horrific death. Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. For there was only one person who could fulfill the unique role of Savior and Redeemer, and Christ fulfilled it perfectly. The consequences for not fulfilling our God-given roles, like Ahab, can be lethal. There is very real possibility that we will, as Paul puts it, shipwreck our faith and maybe even our lives. You see, not fulfilling our roles is disobedience, which is exactly the same failure of Ahab. And there are both natural and spiritual consequences for disobedience. You see, God is deadly serious about accomplishing his purposes. But before we get all depressed and walk away from this sermon feeling down and out, because honestly, none of us can fulfill our roles perfectly, or or even that successfully, I know I can't. There is one last way that God is serious about accomplishing his purposes. Graciously. So stay with me just a bit longer. God is graciously serious about accomplishing his purposes in us, in you. Three times in this passage, the word of God came to Ahab, giving him ample opportunity to hear and obey God. God promised and God delivered on his promises. God was graciously revealing himself to Ahab, despite his CV of rebellion. But even in this parable of judgment, God offers Ahab an opportunity for grace. Look with me again at the parable from the Bashtut prophet. In his parable, when the fictitious soldier brought the prophet the prisoner, this is verse 39, he said that if the prisoner were to escape, the prophet's life would be forfeit, which is what we just spoke about a moment ago. But here's the grace of God embedded in the story. There was also another option to pay a large sum of money to ransom his life. Yes, it was enormous, a cartload or two of silver. But there was another option. Now, this might sound a bit cryptic, but God is offering Ahab a lifeline, an offer of grace in the midst of his judgment. If Ahab's heart had been soft and he had ears to hear, like we spoke about two weeks ago, then Ahab could have repented right then and there on the spot for not fulfilling the commands of the Lord and doing things in his own way. He could have claimed Christ's blood as a ransom, the blood of the talent of silver in the parable, or the 75 pounds. But the sum was too high for Ahab to pay on his own. But that sum is a trifle by comparison for the Son of God, whose blood pays for the sins of the whole world, according to 1 John 2, verse 2. And this same offer is available to all of us, Jesus is offering each of us his blood as a life ransom for our disobedience, our failures, our inadequacies, and our faithlessness. We do not have to turn away like Ahab did and sulk and whinge and mope about how bad our life is, caught in the downward spirals of our broken humanity. But instead, we can take hold of the God who is supernaturally, underestimatedly, deadly, and most of all, graciously serious about accomplishing his good purposes and perfect purposes in your life and in my life and in the world around us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you great glory. We give you great thanks. We worship you 
knowing that you are looking after us, that you are calling us into your life, that you are making good your promises to fulfill us, to restore us, and to perfect us. We pray that in each area of our lives that you have given to us, that we might grow by your spirit to fulfilling those roles as you uh, intend. And we thank you that in our failures and in our sinfulness, you have provided grace, perfect grace, through your blood, through the life and death of your son, Jesus. So we claim and take hold of that forgiveness and walk out into our weeks as your servants. May we glorify you as a people and bring your glory to the city. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate that, mate. Uh, Old Testament uh, is, is, uh, is all of God. It's all the way through that. And that's what we see is, is, is extraordinary pictures of God's grace, God's sovereignty, and uh, our frailties and our weaknesses, and um, just the way God um, works in and through those situations. And he uses those stories to uh, just keep displaying that to us uh, time after time. So that's a, a great picture of there of God's... Um, uh, purposes that he is and he will work them out and uh, we often just have a too small a picture of who God is and uh, we see big pictures of him particularly there in the Old Testament so thanks really appreciate that Ben um, we'll just have Sam uh, to come back and just uh, close with a song if you could do that that would be great um, if you have any questions of Ben, Ben would be more than happy to catch up with you post the service to sort of ask anything about the passage or if anybody would like to see me about prayer or anything regards that, more than happy to catch up with you straight after the service. Thanks. Hey, would you like to stand again, please? We're going to sing The Lion and the Lamb. <laughs> 